Hi friends, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. I'm Dr. MC McDonald, a PhD trauma researcher and life coach. It is my goal in life to reframe the way that we understand trauma. And I think if we want to understand trauma, we need more stories, more examples, an archive of trauma stories. But not just an archive where someone lays their story down for posterity and walks away, an archive that gives them something back, some attunement, some empathy, a reframe, integration, maybe some little piece of knowledge or understanding so that they walk away feeling like the thing that makes the least sense in their lives makes just a little more sense. This podcast is that archive. I'm here with my sister, Elizabeth Meadows. Each week, we read your letters and give you information and advice about how to understand and demystify your experiences and symptoms so that you can heal without shame. So pull up a chair, grab a coffee, and join us. Hey, welcome to the Trauma Tapes. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Nothing new in the world Why of trauma. No. no. Okay. Why? <laughs> I don't know. Cause something just came up on my screen. Mute. I'm like, ah, all right. Oh, sorry. Maybe you hit your space bar that temporarily mutes. As long as you can hear me, that's all that matters. <laughs> okay. So we're back to, so we we're done with, um, tools. I want to put together a little packet of tools for, <laughs> so it's like, yay, finally, we don't I'm do sick of talking about myself. <laughs> I'm sorry to everyone who had to listen to all that. Crap. No, my God. It's so helpful. Thank you oh. for doing it. I think it's helpful to, for people to hear, you know what I mean? No, it's how, and it was helpful for me too. I'm just being a jerk, but like, it's, 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 it's a lot. It's exhausting. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's hard work. You know, it's, it is. I was funny. I was talking in a class last night about like when to put down that kind of work. Yeah. Cause it can, it can really like consume you, you know? Uh, yeah. And yeah. I think the answer is when it starts to feel like distress. Yeah. You know, like when you're, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, picking yourself apart, thinking about shame, you know, the whole thing. Okay. But so I'm going to put together a packet of all the tools that we did, and we'll put that either on the website or Instagram, whatever's easy. Um, but we are back to letters. So if you have a story, you want to share a question, it doesn't have to be a story. You can ask, you know, can you guys talk more about X, Y, or Z, whatever. Um, there's a truck going by. Sorry. <laughs> that sounded like an alien landed in the, your room. <laughs> Hang on, I'm just being uh, abducted. Called. Yeah, by my <laughs> people, the aliens. Um, email us at thetraumatapes at gmail.com if you want us to talk about your letters. Okay, so we're back to letters. What do we have for today? I'm just going to jump right into it. Okay. Hi, Dr. MC and Elizabeth. Thank you for creating this podcast. It has been incredibly informative and, and is also fun to listen to. Through listening to other stories, I find myself increasing in compassion for others and for myself. I know you have covered numerous stories about people who are working through justifying their own trauma, and that is what I feel I am struggling with now. Since I was about nine or 10, I have dealt with hyperhidrosis, which is excessive sweating affecting my palms, soles of my feet, underarms, and face. There was no cause for the sweating. It just happens anytime and is worsened by any sort of emotional or stressful experience. The amount of sweating is severe and often creates droplets of sweat off of my palms and underarms. Mm -hmm. What this looked like for me as a young teenager was huge sweat circles on my shirts, under my arms, and constantly sweaty palms. This made me extremely self-conscious since I felt that everyone was grossed out by the appearance of the sweat. 
I began to wear only dark or baggy clothing to obscure the sweat stains, and I refrained from any group activities that required the use of my hands. As a result, I began to withdraw from social activities and any close interaction with others. Anytime I was in a social situation where I would have to hold hands with others, such as during prayer in church, high-five someone, or shake hands in greeting, I could see the look of surprise and likely disgust on their face as they were met with a sweaty, wet hand. This increased emotional stress of shame only worsened the sweating, making the situation even worse. Several times, people even made exclamatory comments about my sweat or visibly wiped their hand on their clothes after shaking my hand. It was truly mortifying. The excessive sweating affected my ability to do even basic tasks, like write with a pencil or drive a car since my hands would become slippery with sweat. I was nervous at piano lessons because I would leave the piano keys visibly wet and my fingers would slip on the keys. Dating was a nightmare because when the guy would go in for the handhold, he'd be surprised by my wet hands. It began affecting the way I saw my future because at the time I was set on becoming a physician, but was worried that I wouldn't be able to examine patients or perform procedures with my sweaty palms. Any new experience of any kind was nerve wracking because I didn't know when I'd be asked to do something that would expose the sweat. Every experience in my life was in some way tainted by my excessive sweating. I lived in silence with this condition, not even telling my mom until I was about 16. I was so embarrassed and felt that no one would understand or take me seriously if I told them, so I kept it to myself. After telling my mom, she took me to numerous doctors over the course of several years, primary care doctors, dermatologists, endocrinologists, and the only thing they could recommend was topical extra strength antiperspirant, which did not work to stop the sweating. I felt completely crushed and hopeless and felt that I had no future, or at least not a future that I wanted to be living. I felt that I could not relate to anyone because no one knew, no one I knew had ever dealt with something like this. Whenever I tried to bring it up to a friend, they would laugh and say, oh, I sweat a lot too. I know they were trying to make me feel better, but it always felt dismissive and I only felt more, more alone in my experience. Finally, about three years ago, when I was 21, I obtained a, an ion to machine. I'm sorry if I'm butchering that from a dermatologist. This works by passing small electrical currents through the surface of the skin and temporarily reduces the activity of sweat glands. This dramatically reduced the sweating of my palms. And for the first time, I felt that I had hope. It is like my future opened up to me and I thought all of the things I wasn't previously able to do. And now I could. It really has been a life-changing device, and I am so grateful for it. However, as I begin to date more and interact with more people, I still get extremely nervous around others, and especially when it comes to physical touch. Even though my hands no longer sweat as much, I still feel that people are disgusted with me every time they get close to me or touch me. It's a thought and a feeling that I just can't shake, and it really knocks my self-confidence to zero. It's like I've internalized that I myself am disgusting and am not worthy of someone else. I still feel limited by my condition, even though for the most part, the main problem has been solved. Growing up in a home that did not emphasize emotional health and did not recognize mental health as a legitimate concern, I struggled for years even justifying my own experience. I was always told you're not sick or dying, so you shouldn't let this affect you so much or other people have it worse, so there's no reason for you to be sad. 
It took me years to realize how isolating my experience has been and how I am worthy of healing. All this to say, I am just starting to realize that this is a traumatic experience because as Dr. MC says, trauma is an unbearable emotional experience that lacks a relational home. For the last five to six years, I kept all this to myself. And even now, most of my family and friends don't know about this entire experience of mine. For years, I suffered alone. And in some respect, I still feel alone and misunderstood. As I am just now beginning my healing journey, I am in search of help through therapy. My question is, what kind of therapy do I look for? For myself and others who may have gone through similar year, years-long periods of suffering alone and withdrawing due to shame around a physical appearance-altering condition, what kind of trauma is this and what kind of therapy or treatment works best in this situation? Thank you for reading and for any advice you can provide. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Thank you for writing in. What a letter. That's wild. What are your initial thoughts? My initial thing is it brings me back to a um, an experience I had in a with a family member at the time in a um, inpatient situation in a group therapy situation. And this young girl, probably, you know, young woman to 20, 19, 20 years old mm-hmm. stood up and started talking about, started sharing about a similar, but different um, condition that she had. And she was just racked with pain and anguish over mm-hmm. this thing that she could not control. And yeah. it was so touching that she shared it, but so you, you just saw how deep it was for her. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- this was probably about seven years ago and I can still picture this young woman's face and yeah. um, how much this had really kind of wreaked havoc on her life. So I, 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 I get that. And I, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, growing up is hard enough. And then with something like this on top mm-hmm. of it, it's just heartbreaking. It is totally. And so isolating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's okay. So there's a lot of things. The first thing I want to talk about, I will definitely answer the question about what kind of therapy to look for. Um, but I also want to talk about justification of trauma and then a couple of other things. This is one of the reasons why I, I love to kind of explode the distinction between capital T and lowercase t trauma, because the core of what you're experiencing is the same thing as any other trauma, right? Right. The themes in her letter are isolation. Um, there's like a betrayal by her own body mm-hmm. that is hard to understand and grapple with and even hold, let alone continue to live through, right? Like, um, and then how this relates to all of her relational experiences, dating, friends, piano lessons, like school, everything was impacted by this. And so it's easy for us when we look through that lens of like capital T trauma, meaning like abuse, sexual assault, right? These big, more, you know, quote unquote, justifiable traumas versus lowercase T traumas, things that are not like, you know, don't have that weight in the way that we narrate them but you're experiencing the same core right emotions and so it's not so so i wish we could get there faster when it came to justifying our own trauma that's like what she started out with right of like 
I know you've talked to other people about justifying their own trauma. You know, this doesn't, didn't, it's only recently striking her that this qualifies, that this counts as a, as a traumatic experience, you know? That's so difficult. Like, you know, we all need to put down the measuring stick of, yeah. um, you know, and I mean, I remember, you know, calling you during like stressful times and being like, is this trauma? And you're like, yeah, it's trauma. (laughs) (laughs) If you have to ask, it probably is. Right. Right. And I think that's why I love that definition so much of the the unbearable experience and the lack of relational home thing, because it doesn't specify the type of event. It specifies the kind of experience of a type of event. And so, you know, it depends on how you experiencing something could change at different times in your life based on whatever else is going on in the landscape of your life. But the point is, and the the place of recognition is that it's sufficiently overwhelming and you had no relational home, you know? Yeah. Um, We need, I think sometimes we think of um, relational home as something we only need when we have a big capital T trauma and we need a relational home all the time. You know, like this is part of how our psychology is structured. This is part of how our nervous system is wired attunement from other people is necessary all the time in all of our communications, you know? So like, if you think about it, I probably have said this example cause I use it all the time, but if, if something funny happens to you and then you go home or you're teaching a class or you're talking to a group of friends and you say, Oh my God, the funniest thing just happened. And you go into it and you're met with completely blank faces and nobody laughs and you know, nobody responds in the way that you expected that they would, you immediately go inward and start thinking critical things about yourself. Right. Am I not funny? Was that not funny? Did I offend them? What's happening? Am I about to be canceled? Are these really my friends? You know, like (laughs) all of these things. And that's just, we, we need the relational home all the time. We have it most of the time, but when you have something in your experience that is not relatable, that causes a problem. Right. And so it impacts your social connection insofar as you feel nervous and uncomfortable to connect because you have the sweating problem, people are responding negatively to, but also when you try to talk about it with them, they don't have any scope to understand that. Yeah. And that is really unsatisfying. This is not the same at all, but um, I get migraines and have at different times in my life struggled with them a lot more than others. And it is a different kind of experience than, and sometimes people will say like, oh, like I get headaches, you know what I mean? Or, or, or they don't believe you and they're like, oh, suck it up. It's not a big deal. And you're like, I need to go to the emergency room. This is a big deal. Like this is not, you know? Um, so I think the other thing is that when, when we're kind of communicating on a societal level, I think we need to get better about this when communicating exceptional experiences. I think we need to get better at responding And I don't actually know how exactly, because I think sometimes we say, oh, I've had that too, as a way to sort of paste over or to create a bridge and say like, oh yeah, I get headaches or I I got nauseous one time or whatever. And you're like, okay, what you're trying to do is connect to the other person, but it feels to them even further isolating and dismissive, you know, like it's not a big deal. Yeah. And their intentions are good. It's not that they're right. No, this is what I mean. I think we need to get better about this. Like as a whole, like we need better communication tools around this. Cause the other thing we do is say, oh, I can't imagine that. 
what a terrible thing. And that's, again, the impulse I've, I've done both of these things, by the way, it's not like, you know, I don't know the answer here. Um, but I, but I have heard from people who have said these things too. And I also just know from other people who've said this, that that can be isolating in both ways saying, Oh, I can't imagine can make you feel like, Oh, wow. That is a really weird experience. You know, that I, now I am really isolated and alone. Nobody does get it. And then also saying, Oh, I've had that too. When you're not actually experiencing that particular thing and don't have a scope for understanding that I think can be dismissive too. That's, that's really difficult. And and like, you know, I feel like there needs to be, I don't know. I I can see both sides of that because I, I, like, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I, I think when you don't understand something or you're find yourself trying to put it in a box or a category, Mm -hmm. that's kind of like an indication that like, okay, you're not really with the person in that moment. Right. You're trying to explain it away either because you're afraid of it or you Mm -hmm. don't understand it. Yeah, totally. But I also like get the, okay, I'm, I'm trying to Mm -hmm. help and I'm being told I'm wrong. And that's, that's frustrating to, you know, just to play the devil's advocate. It's no hundred percent. I had a client, um, very recently say, you know, it turned into, I was trying to relate and say like, okay, let's, let's move from this point. I'm trying to think of how to do this without you know, getting specific, let's relate in the experience and then figure out how to move forward. Yeah. And what I kept getting was you don't understand you. And it was this very intentional, like I'm putting hand in your face. You don't understand me. I'm pushing you away kind of thing. Right. And it was like, okay, hold on, like pause for a second. What is that resistance about? Cause that's interesting too. Like Right. So if, if you, from that perspective are, are spitting that to other people, cause I think, I think that's what you're talking about, right. When someone yeah. like you're trying to bridge the gap and someone's like, what the hell you don't get it. You know, that kind of thing. Right. Which can be really off-putting. And then you're like, well, I don't know what to do about that. You know, then the answer, the question is like, okay, so I feel like what, what are, what are we missing here where you feel like I'm trying to, it's like a recalibration needs to happen. Right. Right. So in that moment, and it's always easier with a client than with a, an interpersonal relationship that you have. I said like, okay, so there's, I'm, I'm sensing a whole lot of resistance. Like what, here's what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. I was trying to resonate with this core emotion and then think about how to move us forward. Cause I feel an urgency to shift where you are right now. If you want to stay in it and talk about it more, we can do that. But that's where, where I was going, you know? Right. And they were just like, no, I don't want to move forward. I need to like process this moment and this experience. And I feel like nobody can. Yeah. And that's the real thing underneath the resistance, which is always like, that's just the snap response. You know what I mean? There's something underneath that that needs to be looked at. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That that the person doesn't feel that they're being heard in that right. moment or right. validated. Or something is getting missed and they don't even know what it is. And they feel like right. this need to stay in the moment and continue to like sketch it out and what it feels like and the whole experience of it from the inside. But they might not know that consciously, like they might not be able to communicate that. So what comes out is fuck you. You don't understand. Right. And you don't understand. Right. No one can understand anyone else. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the thing. And like, I think, um, then I always go back to this thing of, and I don't know if anybody talks about this, but like the, the core emotion is the thing we have in common. Okay. 
So if you can drill down to like, okay, what is it when you experience the first thing that came up when, when you were reading this letter was that, like, I feel it in my body, that humiliation of reaching out of needing connection of saying the wrong thing. And then just getting that, like that response from another person, whether that's someone you're dating or a friend or family member or whatever, who's just like, what are you talking about? You know? Mm-hmm. And then that response of humiliation in your body, like that flushing in your face and the like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. That criticism that comes in that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. What are you thinking? <laughs> I'm thinking of like the only experience that I have is a, that's a little bit similar to this. And I think you have the same thing, you know, yeah. and I think it's because we're Irish that like <laughs> blushing is like, yes. was definitely an issue when I was in high school. And so oh God, I was slow. called on in class, like yep. my face would turn purple. And yep. it was like, there's just this moment of like, your body's betraying you. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you could do about it. It is yep. unbelievably humiliating. And, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't like rein it back in. Cause it's right. like all over your face and like, you just oh, have yeah. to wait for it to pass, but it's, it's awful. Mm-hmm. It's I, awful that still it. happens to me. I break out in hives when I get really fired up. Yeah. And that has happened at conferences and stuff. Yeah. And so I started wearing scarves and taking Pepsid. It's like right. nine in the morning. I've never heard this much noise outside this window. <laughs> so Everyone sorry. in town is like, let's go ahead and get in the truck and the motorcycle and drive by. <laughs> sorry. I'm not um, saying that that's what the, what the letter writer is experiencing, but no, but like we're talking, you said flushing and it made me think of that. Totally. Totally. And it's people will point at you and call you out on it. And like, mm-hmm. It's and then that makes it worse because you're then being humiliated. And so it tends to like to kind of spiral. And so I think like this is the in-between, I think. And letter writer can tell us, but like, oh, I've had that too, can be dismissive. Right. And oh, I can't imagine that. That's terrible, can be dismissive. But like, right. oh, wait, hold on. That sort of sounds like this other thing. And oh man, I knew how that felt. And that was terrible. That's actually making me turn red right now. You know, like that that seems different because you're like kind of getting inside the experience yeah, from a relational place and being like, okay, I haven't, I, I haven't dealt with that. And I can acknowledge that, you know, and respect your experience and the uniqueness of it. And also say what I have experienced that is similar is this other thing, you know, mm-hmm. and what do we do with humiliation? You know, how do we, right. how do we handle that? Which I think I've said this before, but like, especially in in regards to loss, but I think maybe all trauma, there is a core humiliation. Like I should have known. I should think of like what happens when you, that really intense feeling in your body, when like you do something dumb and you break your favorite mug or something like that, because you're rushing around. Yeah. Instantly go to, I'm such an idiot. If I hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. That if I hadn't done this, then this wouldn't have happened is like this really deep wish that the present was otherwise, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think that that happens when, whenever you have trauma and that's one of the reasons we internalize it and try to make it our own fault. If I hadn't been in this place in that time, I wouldn't have gotten attacked. If I hadn't done this and that, then I wouldn't have stayed in that relationship. If I hadn't blah, 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 done this with my parents, I wouldn't have been a trigger point and they wouldn't have done whatever. You know what I mean? Well, that's the the myth of control that we've talked about. Right. You know? Right. Which is an issue. Like I've been thinking about this all the time recently. There's, we are being reminded so often of just how little is in our control. Right. 
and it's humbling. It is. Okay. So what kinds of therapy would be helpful? I think, you know, going back to great question, by the way. Yeah, totally. And there's not a lot of resources directing people for what to do. You know what I mean? For something like this. Um, when I think you have an issue where you've got betrayal by the body, it's going to impact your relationship with your body, right? Because you've been trying to rein it in, control it. You've been hating it on some level. Um, I imagine. And, um, something that can be really amazing in that space is somatic experiencing therapy. And so this is developed by Peter Levine. And then there's a whole school of it and lots of practitioners everywhere, but somatic experiencing therapy is about introducing your body into the conversation and inviting different kinds of experiences. So it works on the nervous system level to, um, to change the way you feel in your body so that you stop having so many somatic symptoms And also, if you don't have those, or if you feel like you have control over those, improving the relationship with your body. Okay. Um, It's also trauma-based. So when you're doing somatic experience, experiencing, you're working through past trauma. So that would be a critical. Describe like what what that, like, or give an example of that or no? Of what, like it would happen in a session? Yeah. I don't know how the person would start, but typically, so Peter Levine has a workbook and he goes through 12 um, phases of somatic experiencing. And you start by like addressing your body. Okay. So the first exercise is to take one hand, like the, the fingers on your right hand and touch, tap the, the palm of your left hand and say like, okay, this is my hand. And you kind of do that for a couple of minutes and feel what that feels like and whether or not it brings up any anxiety and stuff like that. And then you work down through your whole body so that you're kind of like claiming your space as a physical being. Okay. Um, there's another exercise where you take a string and put it around your boundary. Oh, interesting. And okay. talk about how some people are allowed into this string and, and everyone else is not. And this is my space. Um, a somatic experiencing practitioner will also point out things that happen in your body when you're talking. So if you're talking about something uh, from the past and they are noticing a particular like tick in your body or your shoulders are tightening, or there's some constriction somewhere or your voice is changing, they will kind of notice that and you can address it. Um, not to call it out, but just to say like, Hey, here's a situation, here's an instance where your body is, uh, you know, along for the ride, that kind of thing. That's fascinating. I know. Yeah. That sounds like a great tool for her. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and they might not have experiencing in helping have experience in helping someone with hyperhidrosis, but they will have had experience in helping people who are dealing with the feeling of being betrayed by their body. Right. Or fear of being touched or, or yep. holding hands or right, right. Right. Okay. Right. EMDR is another space that might be helpful. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing developed by Dr. Francine Shapiro um, is a modality that makes use of your prefrontal cortex while you're processing so that you can kind of quiet some of the nervous system responses to trauma. And that can be really helpful for kind of re recalibrating your relationship with yourself, if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and processing some of these things, because I mean, so we talk about the difference between simple and complex trauma. And this is complex trauma, which means 
Um, that's not, I'm not diagnosing you, but it's complex in the sense that while there are instances you can reflect on and remember as memories where this was more upsetting than others, um, it unfolded over your whole life rather than it was a simple singular instance. Right. So if you had a car accident and then you were struggling with, um, getting back in the car and driving again, that would be simple trauma. This is trauma that kind of unfolded over a period of time. So EMDR was designed for simple traumas, but can be very effective for complex traumas, especially if you do have memories that are specific. And it sounds like this letter writer has lots, you know, of moments when she, when a boyfriend tried to reach, you know, and hold her hand or when a friend, you know, she shook someone's hand or the piano keys, that kind of stuff. So getting into the core emotion through those memories and working on how they are categorized can be really helpful. And then just, you know, traditional therapy as well, right? Planning your future, thinking about how this has affected who you are and how you've been in the world and your relationships um, and things like that. So yeah, those are, I think, three good places to start. What about um, finding like people who have had similar? Yeah. Oh, totally. You know, experiences. Yep. Support groups. Just to know that you're not alone or that you weren't alone. Yep. And to get, uh, you know, tips from other people, you never know, you know, like some of the most amazing migraine advice that I've gotten has not been from doctors. It's been from like Facebook groups and, yeah, you know, just anecdotal evidence. Here's what I do when I feel this, right. Which right. a lot of doctors, since they don't have them necessarily don't, don't have those tricks, you know, right. Finding a community, finding that community yeah. for yourself. Right. That right. support. Yep. And, and also just the resonance of like, man, that's tough, you know? I I hate when that happens and this is what I did here. And, oh, I have another, I have a story like that too, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Somatic, say it again, somatic. Experiencing. That's interesting. Okay. Peter Levine is the one who wrote Waking the Tiger, which is about the body responses that we have to trauma, which is the kind of groundwork for the the work that Emily and Amelia Nagoski did in Burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Kind of understanding how animals respond to stress and looking at what we do that can prevent our healing, you know? Right. He's amazing. Yeah. And he has that little workbook and he also has, um, I mean, there are practitioners all over the country, but, um, you can find videos of his online if you want to know more about what that looks like and how that would look in a session, um, and stuff like that as well. Cool. So, yeah, I mean, I think like that humiliation and shame can be worked on in therapy, somatic experience, and can help you have a different relationship with your body. And EMDR can also kind of recalibrate what's going on in your brain and your nervous system when you're kind of entering the world in this new way of someone who's got this at least under control a little bit more, you know? Yeah. Has the freedom to kind of explore the healing now. Yeah. And I, I just also think like, I really appreciate that this letter writer wrote in because these things are traumatic, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah. One of the most foundational ways that we are human is embodied, you know? And when your body betrays you in any way, that's it's, it like strikes at the order of the universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're so quick to write things off, you know, yeah. and that's, that's unfortunate because we mm-hmm. would be able to get to a better understanding, um, faster, you know, yeah. I think of that. Um, I'm going to forget everyone's name, Paul Conti, mm-hmm. the podcast, which I think is just 
unbelievable. Peter, like he, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he spoke about um, a, a client who was just, you know, in so much pain and um, was beating himself all day, beating himself up all day long and, um, you know, telling himself he was worthless and horrible mm -hmm. and, you know, and um, was not in a job that was appropriate for his skill level. And, yeah. and, and it, it all went back to like mild childhood bullying, which yeah. we all probably experienced on yep. some level. Yeah. And his point in that podcast was it doesn't have to be the big, huge thing, right. you know? this has followed this gentleman throughout his life and yep. is, is still causing pain and damage. Yep. So yeah, let, let's not write things off to ourselves. I mean, Oh yeah, totally. You know, and that's why your definition is so groundbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it, I think we can do better than like, Oh, this event and that event and this event, you know what I mean? Like, right. Well, okay, but how about the per the way that the thing I like about that definition is the um the way that it allows for circumstance, you know? Yeah. John, my friend John Kim, who who talks about we he, I remember him telling me a story about he was talking about my own work and he was saying, like, I now understand that there's this thing that happened when I was in like seventh grade that was hugely traumatic. And I never regarded it. And it was right. that he had a skateboard stolen. Right. And he was at these, he was at a new school, right. Just to situate this and provide context. He was at a new school, if I'm remembering this correctly. And um, the skateboard was a status thing, right? So it was, if I have the skateboard, then I'm going to be able to be in with the cool kids. If I'm going to be able to be in with the cool kids, then I will be safe. Mm -hmm. And wow. day one skateboard gets stolen by the big kids and he can't get it back. Parents can't afford a new one. Status thing is gone. It's over and right. he's unsafe, right? Like, right. so that's, we can, you can look at that in your own past and look at it harshly and be like, I don't know why I still remember this thing from seventh grade. It's so small. And, but then the way he talks about it was that this was kind of informing his whole like scarcity mentality about materialism and having enough things and being safe. Like it hits at these very core things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And he was like, I'd I, I like understand that now that this is a, that this was traumatic, you know? Right. But we, until we can, uh, you know, uh, grant ourselves that kindness or forgiveness or, yeah. you know, then we can't get to the point where Right. We understand how much it really affected us. Right. Even just the space for the curiosity, like where, okay, I'm noticing this pat. This is what I do like all day long. I'm noticing this pattern in my life. It's causing problems. What's the source? Right. You know, like, is it a huge thing? Is it a medium thing? doesn't really matter. It's causing this problem. Right. Right. If you have like an ingrown toenail that's causing your foot to like, cramp up when you're walking. So you don't put pressure on it, which is then causing pain in your hip, which is then causing a slip disc in your back, right? All of those pieces are relevant and you wouldn't shame yourself for being like, Oh, well, this is a dumb injury in my foot. And I, you know, I don't deserve healthcare because right. of it. <laughs> right. You would be like, Oh, now I understand. Okay. These things are all connected. It's the same, you know, Yeah, it, it is, it is. I'm just thinking too, that like, it's, I've been thinking since we've been talking for some reason about with more compassion about the history of psychology, like we, we've been only doing this for like really a hundred years, a little over a hundred years. And 
we, we got it wrong a couple of times, you know, like we got the definition wrong. We got treatment methods wrong, mm-hmm. not because we were trying to, you know, trying to, but because we didn't know. And right. so we've had this definition of trauma is only these three things because that's what we thought. Right. That's all they knew at the time. That's all. Right. I mean, that's right. That's yeah. Right. And so like, we, we, we have to look at our own history with that same curiosity of like, okay, where did we misstep? You know? Yeah. How can we get better? Yeah. And then sort of let that like trickle through society, you know, mm-hmm. being betrayed by your body is no small thing. And it's at the heart of any kind of trauma. Yeah. Because if you didn't experience it in the initial traumatic event, you experience it in the trauma symptoms. And so being traumatized is its own trauma, which is another thing. It's spirals and, you know, yeah, all that. Okay. Okay. Thank you for writing in. Do you have a tiny little joy? I do have a tiny little joy. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to qualify this or explain it away okay. or, or um, let shame come into the joy, <laughs> but um, I replaced these door poles in the house that like mm-hmm. I had been wanting to do for a long time. And, and I'm going to describe these things and I hope I'm not offending anyone. as like a, <laughs> like a micro annoyance. Like every time <laughs> yes. I looked at it, I was like, Oh, I don't yes. like that. And I did it and I replaced them. And now every time I look at them, it brings me joy. See, how's that? <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that. Think about that though. Like how, this is the importance of tiny little joys. I feel like I do this every week, but like you, this, this little stuff that you think is little is not little. Cause you look at it 1 million times a day mm-hmm. and that's important. And so if you can make that one change, exactly, that can change the way you you are in the world. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, absolutely. And uh, like, you don't realize the energy these things have, mm -hmm. you know, that these moments have every single day when you see it and you think, and you start beating yourself up that you haven't done it. Why haven't you done it? It's stupid. Mm -hmm. So just doing it is just yeah, changed my perspective. Totally. I'm thinking about those pendant lights. I had those terrible orange ones. Yeah. Did you change those? (laughs) Yeah. But after like a year, yeah. I'm right? hating them every single time I walked into the kitchen. Like those are the worst thing I've ever seen. I hate them. I hate the light they give off. Like there were these like sixties style, but not cool. Very like, not actually like mid-century, but like, yeah. Yeah. Sixties isn't mid-century anyway, but you know what I mean? Like that was like trying to home Depot, trying to do stylized and it like didn't work. Right. And it was terrible. And but I, that's how you started your day every day, every day, every day. Right. And then a hundred times a day when I would walk in there, Oh my God, I can't. Oh my God. And then at the night, Oh my God, those are terrible. This is the worst. Isn't that crazy? It is. And then it costs like a hundred dollars. Go get some new ones that are neutral. It takes an hour and a half fix. You know what I mean? Like, and right. And it like opens things. Yeah. These were like a trip to home Depot and I did it right. myself. I think they were $4 each. Right. Like, right. Like, <laughs> But I'm not going to get into why I didn't do it. I'm just going to focus on I did yeah. it and it feels mm-hmm. great. Yep. That's good. I love that. Yep. That's Thanks. a good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Mine's funny, but it's it's sort of like irreverent and I hope I don't offend anybody. But um, so you told me to watch Only Murders in the Building. <gasps> did you love it? The best show I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> right? Isn't it fabulous? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Steve Martin is amazing. I love Martin Short. Like, yep. It's just, and the story, it's so irreverent and hilarious. And they're making fun of true crime podcast people, which is, that's my total, that's all I do when I'm not doing all my other stuff is listen to true crime podcasts. So it's so funny. 
and they're making fun of Sarah Koenig when having Tina Fey be <laughs> it's so good. Cindy Canning or whatever her character. And it's just like a delightful distraction. And this is also super helpful. The episodes are only 30 minutes. Yeah. And so I have like a negative time, but it's, it enables me to like get into this other world and be totally entertained. Don't you but, love the, like the apartments and those spaces? Oh my God. The rooms. Yeah. And like, oh my God. I the love lighting, their clothes, yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. It actually makes me really nostalgic for New York, which I don't usually, I'm not usually, that's the Apthorpe building. Was that near you? Yeah. It was like at 79th or I think, and Broadway, which okay. is where Nora Ephron lived. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. But there are two buildings. There's one like on Central Park. And then there's one there, which was on the, on the other side of town or the other side of the Upper West Side, sorry, on um, Broadway near the uh, other park. Okay. Riverside Park. Sorry. Um, and I think they're kind of, I'm not sure which they filmed it at, if they filmed it at either one, but they were the same, like those huge buildings with the giant courtyard. And it's such a magical thing. And those apartments are like that. I love the, I, you know, I think when this like whole thing of like open concept and wide open spaces and, but I just love the little rooms and the nooks yeah. and crannies. Oh and yeah. I, yeah. I find that so attractive. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Me too. Oh, my God. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but so I was talking to somebody about it yesterday who, who was also watching it and they were talking about Selena Gomez's voice. Yeah. Which is very strange. I, you know, I, I'm old <laughs> and like, I, I like, I didn't know her either. <laughs> okay. So I found this out last night. So she came, okay. she started out on Barney, like the purple dinosaur Barney. And then she was on the Disney channel and then she was a singer and she's has a billion albums. She's a, you know, a beast, like all this stuff. Okay. But her speaking voice is very funny. And someone said to me yesterday, her voice, I had to write this down. Her voice is how people you don't want to talk to sound like when you're on drugs. Wait, say it again. <laughs> her voice is how people you don't want to talk to sound like when you're on drugs. <laughs> And I laughed for like 25 straight minutes. Oh, like that's good. Pain in my that's stomach, crazy. laugh. Like, yeah. So sorry good. to Selena Gomez if this is mean, but her voice is. It's <laughs> like, uh, I don't know how to describe it. Restricted. Like, like, it's Kermity. It's very in yeah. very back of her throat. And she, yeah. 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 It makes me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. It was just such a like specific, like right, right, perfect description. Right. Targeted like burn, you know. And I just I think that's really there's something really beautiful about that. You no, know? yeah, smart. It was yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. But thank you for the show recommendation because it was amazing. If you haven't watched it, go watch it. It's on Hulu. It's just freaking delightful. I like have a big smile on my face throughout the whole thing. I, me too. Such a kick out of it. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Oh, that's so funny. It also, it feels like another time. Like, I feel like that's one of the only things I've ever, I've been able to watch in the last, whatever, 18 months that really transports you to like, not a COVID world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You didn't watch Shit's Creek. You have to, it's like a, it's like the next show okay. for me. It's like, okay. it feels the same. You're I'll just like, ah. I'll have to watch that. It's funny. Okay, cool. Um, All thank right. you for listening. Um, what are the things? Yeah. <laughs>
I have them rate, written down. Rate, review, and subscribe. Yes. Rate, review, subscribe, please. It's super helpful. And if you have a question or you want to email us and have your story featured, email us at the trauma tapes at gmail.com. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you.